Welcome to Energy in Action. I'm your host, Marcy Young, and as a Mito patient myself, I appreciate you and the community you've helped us to build. This podcast honors the triumphs and struggles of patients and families affected by this disease and celebrates the work being done by doctors and researchers every day to make it a safer world for our people. We are a support group and a podcast focusing on all things related to mitochondrial disease. Hello, welcome to another episode of Energy in Action. I'm your host, Marcy Young, and I am joined together today with Emily Milligan and Shelly Bowen from the Barth Syndrome Foundation. And this is a very important episode because there's a lot happening for their organization, for the families involved with Barth Syndrome. And so today is an episode all about the news and what we can do to help. So we're going to just get right into it. Can one of you share with us a little bit about Barth syndrome and how rare it really is and some of the symptoms and the lifespan, et cetera? Barth syndrome is, it's a very rare disease. It affects the last estimate, one in a million individuals. We currently know of about 130 people in the United States that have been diagnosed with Barth syndrome that are living with it. I say about because I we things change. We've got we've got a couple of calls coming up this week, so we may have even more than that. So um, the symptoms of Barth syndrome are cardiomyopathy, and it's usually dilated, which is a thinning of the heart muscle. Can be hypertrophic, which is thickening of the heart muscle. And a lot of times there is a, um, there's a, also a rare form of cardiomyopathy, which is called left ventricle non-compaction, which is basically where there are crevices in the heart where blood can lodge and it can cause clots to fall off. So we can see strokes, arrhythmias in this group as well. Neutropenia, which is a reduction of low of um, white blood cells, particular white blood cells that can't fight bacterial and fungal infections. They have a low muscle mass and muscle weakness. They are typically small earlier in life, and they will have an accelerated growth phase in the mid mid to late puberty. Exercise intolerance, which is really prevalent across all. Not everybody's going to have cardiomyopathy, but everybody has fatigue that has Barth syndrome. And feeding problems, which are very prevalent from early on. The other thing is is that we do see that Barth syndrome predominantly affects males. Not always, but predominantly. It is often fatal. And we do see a lot of children who die earlier in life. We don't have a lot of adults that are in the group, and there are currently no treatments for birth syndrome. So that's where we are with our condition. And right now, people are dying and people are suffering, and we need, we need therapies to be developed. So have there been any advancements in research and drug recently? So I'll take that one. I'm going to highlight one specific drug called elamipratide. Uh, as Shelley mentioned, there are no FDA-approved therapies for Barr syndrome. We're, we're unfortunately in that 90% uh, plus group of rare and ultra-rare indications without approved therapy. We're working really hard to try to change that. With elamipratide, this is the latest stage a development opportunity that we have presently for Barr syndrome. We have been working with a company well over six years, uh, getting close to a decade on this on this effort. And it was a phase two, three trial. Uh, we went into open label extension and we are now at a place where we're really hoping that the FDA will accept a new drug application for this product. Of course, we have other opportunities in the pipeline as well. Great. Well, 
Tell me what benefits those dealing with Barth syndrome have seen when taking this drug. Certainly. So Shelley mentioned that one of the biggest complaints of Barth syndrome, one of the greatest burdens that people have to contend with with their health and their quality of life is the overwhelming fatigue. People can sleep an enormous number of hours every day. It definitely constrains their ability to work, to go to school, to have a meaningful social life. And that's something that everybody really desires having. With elamipratide, we have seen so many people, real world evidence of people saying, I feel better. They are able to have those jobs, have those relationships, go with their friends to the movie theaters. Just be able to even to like, we heard a young man yesterday talking about, or his mother actually talking about, he's able to dance with her at her his sister's wedding. You have things like that, that really define our lives, that give that ability to be present and with our family members in ways that we want to be. And so this drug has enabled people to live out some of those dreams they had before they had the opportunity to take it. And the problem that we're contending with right now is that we have not been able to identify a path forward with the regulators, so with the FDA in this country. And if we are unable to do so, this is after, again, many years of working to try alongside the sponsor of this product called Stealth Biotherapeutics, working alongside them with our advocacy efforts to identify a way forward the FDA. If we are unable to do so, unfortunately, people who are presently on this drug will most likely lose access and people who are in line wanting to be able to get that script from their healthcare provider to go to the pharmacy to be able to have this opportunity to take the first ever approved drug for Barr syndrome may never get that opportunity. It's really a dire situation for our community at present. And I, I did mention the fatigue. There's also been, we have a, a biomarker when it comes to cardiac function, and we have also seen improved cardiac function in people who are taking this drug. And coupled with, again, the improvement of energy, I know that's really important for the Mito community. Uh, th these are two key indicators that this is a really impactful, a clinically impactful opportunity for our population population. And of course, we would hope others in the future be able to access it as well. So what is the basis for the issue with the regulators? Why can another research-based drug make it through? And why are we struggling with this right now? That's a fantastic question. I think there's there's lack of consistency, honestly, in how drugs get reviewed in the, at the FDA. This is an extremely frustrating situation for us to be in. And I just want to highlight a couple of things that our foundation has undertaken over the years to try to never have to be in this situation. So we've had a, an externally led patient-focused drug development meeting where we had over 25% of our world population present. So critical mass. That informed a voice of the patient summary report, which we submitted to the FDA back in 2019. Actually hand-delivered that to Janet Woodcock's office at the time. We also have had two listening sessions with the FDA, uh, even during COVID. So we were able to do that, a virtual session with them talking about risk tolerance of clinical benefit with our community. We purposely invited members of our community that had different perspectives on that. But a majority of people said we are we would like the right to try this drug, obviously with some preliminary data that supports that it would be safe and efficacious. Not to mention this drug has over 100 patient years of safety data at present. So the safety concern, which is always primordial to our community, has been addressed, is being addressed and constantly evaluated of this product. 
In addition to other listening sessions, we've had a community-wide petition with thousands of people who signed on. We've had two physician-led sign-on letters, physicians who are experts in Bar syndrome or familiar with it saying, I would prescribe this. Please give this drug a, a review. And we've also done a half-day workshop with high-ranked and influential leaders of the FDA as recent as last year. We even had our first ever Bar Syndrome Awareness Day this year to try to create awareness. And I really want to thank uh, Rep Tonko of New York for leading the resolution in the House acknowledging Bar Syndrome Awareness Day. So that was a huge accomplishment for our community. All of this we have done to try to help the FDA appreciate the nuances of the Bar Syndrome community, how extremely ultra-rare this is. We have brought in key opinion leaders from reputable institutions in this country, including Johns Hopkins University, Duke University, and others to provide testimonials. And we are still at a place where there is an inconsistency in even acknowledging the parameters we have for clinical trial design. The FDA has said, you know, go find more patients. Well, definitionally, by being ultra rare, there are no more patients. We had 10% of our known population, as not even including eligibility criteria, 10% of our known U.S.-based population participate in this one trial. And that is why we are saying, please, please give this a fair, appropriate, equitable review. Why they haven't been willing to, they've been very focused on the clinical trial design itself, saying you did not meet the primary endpoints. Well, you know, statistically, that's really, really hard for barely a double-digit clinical trial. And this drug, we've also learned, it, it, you see the benefits the longer you're on it. So that was a learning. Don't penalize us for a learning. Exercise your regulatory flexibility such that you can review all the data that has been amassed by the sponsor in support of the efficacy of this drug. If you look at the open label extension data, the results are highly statistically significant in way of people being able to walk further, just something that represents how it impacts their daily life. They're able to walk around the block, go to the mall, do things with their families. That's reflected also in the real world evidence and narratives from these patients. We also did a natural history comparison study. Again, very positive results highly statistically significant. But the refused to file letter that the FDA sent to the sponsor back in 2021 didn't even acknowledge that study. They said the open label extension was not well controlled because people knew they were on the drug. But we're asking them, please review the data. You can't imagine an adolescent. So an adolescent who has, I have a son. I have a son who's 15, right? And he does not have bar syndrome, but I can tell you that age group is particularly challenging. <laughs> and we know that adolescents, it's tough to keep them um, compliant with their medications, right? So this clinical trial, we were working with 14 and up, and we have seen even in the open label extension, adolescents saying, I am willing to give myself an injection in my abdomen daily because I see such a tremendous benefit in my life. That's over 60% of people that were in this trial. Yes, it was a small denominator, but people who have said they felt that much better to be willing to give themselves an injection daily. This is where we say a little bit of common sense goes a long way. And we would really like for the FDA to be willing to consider the anomaly of adolescents, young adults being willing to 
give themselves an injections to be able to see this benefit. We even provided to the FDA evidence from another trial we were doing, a repurposed trial in the United, in the United Kingdom. And in that trial, in generally speaking, the participants said, you know what? I didn't feel that much better. The data supported that. And the people didn't really want to keep taking the drug with a minor exception. But in this trial of elamipratide, we've heard people saying, please don't take this drug away from me. I want to keep giving myself an injection to have the clinical benefit. And if the FDA would look at the open label extension data, the natural history comparison data, listen to the patient perspectives, it substantiates those real world claims. You know, for the mito community, for the bar syndrome community, there needs to be a little ingen ingenuity. There needs to be a way to think creatively and methodically about drug review processes. And Congress has given the FDA the authority for regulatory flexibility. When the standards that are developed for large indications such as oncology or diabetes or others, simply these small populations cannot conform to. And so that regulatory flexibility exists in order for them to be able to provide fair, appropriate, equitable review. 10% of our population who participate in one trial, again, not even considering eligibility criteria, 10%, if you were to liken that to an oncology scenario, let's just say for, you know, a million people, this is, you know, for, to illustrate the example here, that would be a hundred thousand people that would have to be enrolled in that trial. And they don't have to do that because the statistics can tell a more complete story by being able to power a study appropriately and be able to give that full picture. But in ultra rare, you cannot do that. You have, in order to get the full picture you have to consider different data sets, novel ways of approaching, answering a question, and most certainly incorporating the patient perspective in weighing that decision. So I think this is really scary for the entire MITO community because I'm hoping for, for more research and drug advancements for my particular condition. And I know everyone else listening is thinking about themselves or their family member, friend, who also suffers from a mitochondrial condition. So none of our communities really have those big numbers like oncology that you're speaking about. So this has been a really big hit right now. And there's a lot we can do, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But it's a big hit for all of us. Because if we can't get this drug approved for Barth syndrome, then it's it's a scarier future for, for the rest of us. And we're in this together, so we want to help. What can our listeners do? Well, thank you. I want to discern something for the community, for your listening body, and then we'll talk about some of what we can do. We are not telling FDA to approve this drug. All we're asking for is to accept a new drug application and provide fair and appropriate and equitable review in accordance to the regulatory flexibility that Congress has given them to review elamipratide for Barth syndrome. And the outcome of that, and hopefully they follow that, we are optimistic it will be positive. It boggles my mind. They have the ability to, they've been granted permission to review. 
correct? This is a congressional authority given to the FDA to exercise regulatory flexibility. But it's not being given as of today. As of right now, they are requiring another pre-approval trial whereby we would have to recruit more people to substantiate the data that has already been generated and provided to the agency. The company has already invested more than $75 million in associated costs with this program. If we have to follow another pre-approval trial requirement, we are looking at seven to eight figures in additional investment by the company. doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand these are big numbers. These numbers are disincentives for investors, for small biotech, for small pharma, to invest in product development for ultra rare diseases and rare diseases. I think we should say that again. It's a disincentive for them right now for if they need to do this again, but it's also a disincentive for any future research drug out there. Absolutely. Especially in the rare disease community when we just can't produce those numbers. No, and, and then figures, the, the, the financial figures are simply astronomical. And we understand that those also get passed down to the consumer downstream. Right. So if you're, for argument's sake, putting in $85 million into the development of a product that, that will be labeled for 150 people in this country, I mean, somebody's got to bear the burden of that somewhere. So it's just, it's not a model that works either to incentivize the drug development opportunities that we need. We need it. We need this. In Bar Syndrome, and I know a lot of the people in the Mito community experience also, it's not only the neutropenia, but it's also the cardiomyopathies. It's the fatigue. It's the GI, the gastrointestinal challenges, the, the nutrition, the feeding. It affects the whole body. And so one drug that's going to be able to attenuate all of those symptoms is a vision we have, but it's not something we have realistically in our, in our foreseeable pipeline of opportunities. We have to have multiple approaches such that people can live the best lives possible with therapies and treatments available to them. If we have to invest, and I'm saying we as the ecosystem, right, have to invest $75, $85, 100000000 million to attenuate one or two of those symptoms and aren't able to invest in additional resources for other aspects of the syndrome, you know, that's not in good conscience for us. We, we want to have multiple products under development at any given time. And the amount of investment is sizable. And I, I, I think <laughs> the other thing to add is that the FDA has said that the patient's voice matters. We have invested a lot of money, over $100,000 to ensure that the patient voice is being heard. And that is really hard for families to have to dig deep and talk about their deepest fears that they have to suppress. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to live with it. If you have to focus on the gravity of any given situation that you have or any given disorder that you have, when it is life-threatening, it will cripple you emotionally very quickly. So we have asked our families to dig deep. We're doing that right now. These meetings that we're going through, they are brutal. They are absolutely brutal. To see our families reduced to tears because they are begging their legislators to help them to just have the FDA do their job and to see our families do this and to put them in this position, it is, it is unconscionable that, that we have to do that and their voices are not being heard. 
they are not being heard. It's lip service. We're seeing no evidence that they're being heard, not by the FDA. So I'll reference a little bit of what Shelley was um, speaking about. We have exhausted all attempts at reasonable and constructive dialogue at this point with the FDA. The door is still open. We are not an organization that is contentious or uh, argumentative. However, we have a problem and we would like acknowledgement of that problem such that we can embark on realistic and constructive conversations that are productive. And absence of acknowledging that or denying it exists, the problem is where we're at present in that's why we are we are at a place where we've decided the only recourse we have is congressional intervention. And this is not a, a decision that came lightly to our organization. It's, it's, it's unfamiliar. It's uncomfortable. It is, we thought we could prevent having to go this route again with all of the initiatives that we had spearheaded over the last five years, engaging the FDA, what we hoped to be with productive conversation. So at present, we are reaching out in a bicameral and bipartisan way because it's not a pol- political issue or partisan issue. This is a people issue. It's a people issue, particularly for those with ultra-rare diseases and disorders. At this point, we are really happy to report that Senator Braun of Indiana has agreed to lead a sign-on letter, which again, we hope will be bicameral and bipartisan, inquiring into the FDA's regulatory affairs as they pertain to ultra-rare diseases and drug development. This is not a letter that is specific to Barr syndrome or elamipratide, the drug in question. This is a general inquiry because this is a shared issue with many of our peers with other indications. So we are in the final stages of finalizing that letter and really appreciate Senator Braun being a champion, not only the Barr syndrome community, but the Mito community at large and other congressional offices that have expressed a willingness and interest of signing on in support of this letter. So much more to come here, but these are the conversations that Shelley was referencing that our members of our community have been engaged in and reaching out to the representatives and senators. We'll make sure to include a link in the show notes for our listeners to be able to find out more and to stay current on the news and the updates as, as they come. So is there anything that a listener can do right now to help? We are hoping to unveil a letter where families, not only our families, but people from the Mito community and other people with rare diseases can sign on. And we can take this broader than just having one-on-one meetings because anyone with a rare disease needs to speak out and and say, we deserve therapies. There's 30 million Americans that have a rare disease and they should not be discounted. So as soon as we get that link, and we're hoping it's like within days, so we should have something. By the time this airs, we will have we will have a link. And we welcome everybody to go there and you can personalize it. You can and send it in to let FDA know that this is not acceptable. And this is truly an issue for all of us. Right now, we're speaking specifically about Barth and we want the best for our Barth community. But beyond that, this is definitely an issue for all of us. And we have to stick together because we are so, so, so rare individually, but maybe we'll just be so, so rare if we come together. So we need to be strength in numbers. And you don't have to just copy and paste and send. I think that you should share your stories and say, this is who I am. This is how this disease affects me, whatever it is. And to say, this is not acceptable. 
This is not acceptable. So creating the template of that letter and all I would need to do is sit down and tell a bit of my story and type that out and include the letter. And then do I mail it in? It will be an auto link and we are going to post it on, on our website. Okay. And we'll have that in the show notes as well. Thank you, ladies, so much for sharing this update about Barth syndrome, the news. We're so close. I really, really hope that there's a positive outcome here. I can understand as a mito patient myself why feeling a relief from some of these symptoms would be so unbelievable and why it seems just like so pinnacle for for all of us, for all of our lives. And so we really need to stick together. And on most episodes, we don't ask of ask our listeners to do anything after they listen. But today we are. We are asking you to go into the show notes to find out more with website updates on how you can send in this letter electronically with some personal information about your mitochondrial story. So it's important to say that you also have a mitochondrial disease and we're all part of the mitochondrial disease community while I might not have Barth myself. So you presented the information so well, and I'm I'm very fired up. So I hope our listeners are too. And I hope that in due time, we'll have some great updates and we'll be able to do another podcast episode talking about those updates. So Emily and Shelly, thank you so much for being here and for sharing all of this good information. Thank you, Marcy. We really appreciate you. We appreciate Mito Action and the entire Mito community for being behind us and alongside us on this. Thank you. Of course. Thank you for joining us. I encourage you to browse other Energy in Action podcast episodes. I'm so inspired by the resilience of those in previous episodes, and I know you will be too. 